Low-lying evening sun, crisp frosty mornings, and a distinct nip to the wind. This might be how most people sense the beginning of winter this year, but for ambulance staff, there's another surefire sign that winter was well and truly in motion. You started giving out salbutamol and ipotropium like they were smarties. COPD exacerbations are incredibly common at this time of year, and the treatment of this condition in particular is one that many student paramedics and junior ambulance staff become comfortable with early on in their careers due to the sheer volume of the presentation. That said, a 2017 study found that Australian paramedics struggled to differentiate cases of COPD and asthma, and only correctly identified COPD presentations in about 57% of shortness of breath cases. This data also seemed to show paramedics may be less likely to recognise the differential diagnoses in these cases, such as heart failure. With this in mind, we felt it might be a good time to examine the topic of COPD, the pathophysiology and the assessment of these patients. It shouldn't be too difficult though. Hopefully, we'll make it sound really wheezy. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh. I'm a specialist paramedic in critical care. I'm Simon. I'm an advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine. And I'm Alex. I'm a paramedic and operations officer. This is the first of a two-parter podcast talking about COPD. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the pathophysiology of COPD, how patients get a COPD diagnosis, as well as the history taking and examination that's involved with assessing these patients when they're suffering from an exacerbation. And then the second part, we're going to be looking at the treatment options for these patients, uh, as well as how we're going to manage them and when they do and don't need to go to hospital. But guys, let's just start by talking a little bit about why we think COPD is so important to talk about. Why, why have we chosen this subject? Exacerbation of COPD is a relatively common presentation to the emergency department. So uh, I see it quite a lot and it, it varies in presentation between the sort of mild that we're discharging and the, the really, really sick patients that we have in recess. So it's quite a varied disease and actually we can have quite a big spectrum of discharging people at scene or admitting them to hospital and I think it's really important that pre-hospital clinicians understand that. Exactly it's it's really common and I think I, I imagine most people feel the same as as I did when I was a student that COPD exacerbation was probably one of the conditions that I got to grips with and I felt most comfortable with early on because you were seeing that many COPD exacerbations and salbutamol and ipotropium were probably the medications that I was most familiar with early on as a student, uh, again, because you, you're giving them so much, particularly in the winter months. So it's definitely something we see frequently. It's definitely a topic that paramedics nationally can benefit from doing a bit more research and learning a little bit more about. And yeah, I'm really excited to to learn a bit more about the topic. It's one of those subjects that is quite easy to get a a basic grip of but the more research you do and the more you look into the topic the more nuanced it gets and I think it's really important that clinicians whichever role you're in whether you're in primary care or on the road or research or any other role that paramedics uh, or pre-hospital clinicians are working in it's really important that we have a good understanding of CAPD in all of its many and varied presentations. I think a great point you've made there, Alex, is that the more you look into it, the more complex it gets. And actually, in preparing for this podcast, 
I learned lots. And I think that there's going to be some things later on coming up that actually all of us have been traditionally taught in our paramedic training that we now might have to start questioning. And a few things that maybe are outside of JR Calc that we, we can really hit at home and have a, have a good chat about. Yeah, agreed. It's definitely one of those conditions that you think about when you think about uh, 999 emergency work. So there's a lot to cover. Let's get started. Alex, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about what COPD means? The term COPD is a bit of an umbrella term. The, the condition COPD itself actually affects more than 250 million people around the world, and it's actually thought to be the third leading cause of death worldwide. So it is quite common. So it's it's quite important that we have a, a good definition. The World Health Organization defines COPD as a common, preventable and treatable chronic lung condition, which affects men and women worldwide. Abnormalities in the small airways of the lungs lead to limitation of airflow in and out of the lungs. A number of processes cause the airway to become narrow. There may be destruction of parts of the lung, mucus blocking the airways and inflammation and swelling of the airway lining. So from that, what we can take away is that COPD is a global disease. It's non-communicable. So obviously that means can't be passed on. And it represents a significant worldwide cause of morbidity and mortality, as well as entailing a significant associated strain and cost burden on the public health services. Yeah. And something that I thought was really interesting and was very surprising to me is that it's it's estimated between 25 and 45 percent of patients that have COPD have never smoked so I really thought this was the smoker's disease and and we'll we'll come on to talk about it that obviously there is a very high association with smoking but I was quite surprised to learn just how many patients who have a diagnosis of COPD may have never smoked a cigarette in their life in, indeed 14 percent of the overall COPD burden internationally is attributed to occupational exposures with rural populations having a much higher risk for 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 COPD so farmers and the like so that that's something that I found particularly interesting yeah and it's really interesting that you say that Josh actually there's a paper by uh, Gershon in the Journal of Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease that looks at socio-economic status and it was a systematic review that basically found in lower socio-economic classes there is a higher prevalence of COPD. Now, I originally put this down to the fact that there's probably a higher smoking prevalence in in those classes. However, like you just said, it's not always smoking related. It could be that there's more exposure to air pollution due to the locations of housing, maybe closer to cities and urban areas around industry. Those in low socioeconomic classes may also work in occupations that expose them more to those noxious substances that you were talking about. So, I think that um, actually this is a, a much bigger topic, as you quite rightly said, than just smoking. Alex has kind of alluded to a little bit about the pathophysiology of this disease and the fact that it is a bit of an umbrella term for two particular conditions that are ongoing. Simon, do you want to talk a little bit more in depth about what exactly that means and what exactly is going on in the lungs of a patient who has COPD? Okay, so first of all, we need to look at causes. So as we discussed, smoking is the most common cause, but by a long shot, it's not the only cause. 
Then we need to look at the environment. So that's exposure to noxious substances, uh, as we've talked about, like sort of industry. And then finally is the rare cause, which is alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And as we talk through the pathophysiology, we'll come on to uh, how that has impact in the in COPD patients. COPD can be broken into two main conditions under that umbrella term. Those are chronic bronchitis and emphysema. Now, we used to talk about these separately, but actually evidence has shown us that most patients have a combination of both diseases, but they tend to lean towards one or the other. So there used to be a lot of talk around pink puffers and blue bloaters, whereas actually those aren't really appropriate terms to use anymore. But it does give us a little bit of a foundation to understand why the pathophysiology gives that sort of picture. So we'll talk about them separately, but just remember there is a combined disease process. So in chronic bronchitis, this is primarily a mucus hypersecretion problem. When noxious particles infiltrate the lungs, so that could be um, a smoker and the chemicals that come from smoking, it results in an overproduction of mucus from the mucus glands and goblet cells that line the airways. Over time, these mucus glands and goblet cells undergo hypertrophy, which means they enlarge in, and hyperplasia, which means that the number of them gets increased. And as a result, that then produces even further excess mucus. As part of the lung's defence, there is infiltration of macrophages, neutrophils and leukocytes, which make up some of our white blood cells. And this is just part of a normal inflammatory response to those noxious particles. This causes an inflammation of the airway lining and constriction of the smooth muscle narrowing the airways, hence why we get some of our wheeze. This results in a reduced luminal space for air movement and can actually cause mucus plugging, which then traps air and prevents it from getting out. Along with that, we know our airways are lined with small hairs that we call cilia, and in between those small hairs, there is always a thin layer of mucus, even in a normal, healthy airway. We've obviously just discussed that chronic bronchitis causes excess mucus buildup, and this excess mucus then traps pathogens like viruses and bacteria, which leads towards our exacerbations of COPD when the patient gets infection. So these cilia move rhythmically and they push up those pathogens so we can cough them up or swallow them. However, in chronic bronchitis, because there's so much mucus buildup, this process gets damaged. We call this process our mucociliary escalator. And because it's not working properly, because of the excess mucus and also the fact that we've lost cilia because of damage from the smoking itself, we lose this function and therefore can't get rid of infections and pathogens, which makes us much more prone to having lower respiratory tract infections. Okay, so that's how it affects the bronchi and bronchioles. Repeated exposure to a noxious substance causes an immune response. Hypertrophy and repeated activation of that immune response leads to a chronic condition in which the bronchioles are constantly narrowed. We have an overproduction of mucus, which traps more pathogens in the airways. And we've got a negatively affected cilial escalator remove that mucus from those airways. But what about the alveoli? How are they affected in chronic bronchitis? So in a normal airway, we have to have an understanding of ventilation and perfusion. So obviously, normally, 
oxygen comes in and it's diffused across the alveolar membrane into the capillary network down a concentration gradient. And likewise, CO2, because of the high concentrations in the blood and low concentrations of CO2 in the alveoli, CO2 is diffused out and we ventilate it off. However, in a patient with chronic bronchitis, firstly, we have an oxygenation problem. Because of the inflamed airway, along with that excess mucus we just talked about, there is reduced oxygen reaching the alveoli, which results in hypoxemia, and therefore we're going to get possibly like low SATs and cyanosis, because we can't get as much oxygen in. However, that's not the only problem. We also have an issue with carbon dioxide retention. During expiration, our small distal airways are relatively narrow, so they get smaller as we breathe out. Now, in a normal airway, that's not a major problem because we have plenty of room to still get carbon dioxide out. However, in those with chronic bronchitis, they've already got narrowed airways because of that smooth muscle inflammation, that mucus hypersecretion, which is clogging those airways. So therefore, we can't actually get CO2 out, so we start to retain CO2 and become hypercapnic. Furthermore, the physical air that's trapped in the alveoli that can't get out means that more air is coming in than we can get out, and this therefore expands the alveoli in something we call air trapping. We, we've got issues getting stuff in, but perhaps of greater concern and and literally in the name of the disease, we have a greater problem getting gas out because of those constricted airways. So we get these ballooned alveoli uh, and hyperinflated chest, CO2 retention because we're not able to ventilate the CO2 out of the chest as readily. And that results in a level of type 2 respiratory failure. So not only is the patient hypoxic, but they're also retaining CO2. They also have elevated levels of arterial CO2 because of their inability to move this gas that's trapped in the alveoli out. And that then shows clinically as crackles in the chest because the it's the airways trying to open when the mucus is sticking them together and they're collapsing. As you quite rightly said, Josh, the hyper-expanded chest, we get a wheeze because of the bronchoconstriction that occurs in the smooth muscle and the turbulent airflow that results in that narrowed lumen. And then obviously we're also going to potentially see a type 2 respiratory failure or a, a hypercapnia on our either ETCO2 or probably more likely on our arterial blood gas. And I think this is relevant to highlight because it was certainly a misconception that I had when I was a student. The fine crackles that we associate normally with patients that have COPD. So we, we, we would all expect to hear fine crackles when listening to their chest, uh, whether or not they're suffering exacerbation or not. That, that isn't coming from fluid on the chest. That's the alveoli collapsing back down on themselves that we're hearing. Yeah, quite right. And that's really important, Josh, because actually we then need to differentiate what's normal crackles and what's normal wheeze for a COPD patient and when they then have an acute exacerbation, which can be really challenging. And normally it's just a worsening of those symptoms. Obviously, as we said, if we get infection on top of that, then the natural inflammatory process that we've already talked about is just going to be escalated even worse. So those crackles are going to get much worse. So that's how we clinically differentiate that exacerbation because it's basically a worsening of baseline symptoms. Okay, so how does what you've just described, chronic bronchitis, differ from emphysema, which is the other condition that we are talking about when we use COPD as this umbrella term? 
Okay, so emphysema. Now, we're still going to talk about that normal immune response to those noxious substances. Those alveolar macrophages are going to come into the lungs and they're responding to that invading substance. Those macrophages are going to phagocytose, which is engulf those substances and try to break them down to make them less harmful. As part of that process, they release cytokines, which causes an inflammatory response by bringing other inflammatory mediators to the area. And this results in inflammation. Some of those white cells are neutrophils, and neutrophils produce proteases, which are enzymes that break down proteins. And there's specifically one that we're concerned with in emphysema, which is neutrophil elastase. Now, elastase breaks down elastin by hydrolysis, and elastin is really important in alveolar, small airway, and chest wall function. So Alex, do you want to talk a little bit about um, elastin and it's how it works with the chest wall? So elastin is the stretchy part of the alveolus, which is responsible for giving the chest its recoil, its passive recoil. Um, as you probably know, when, when you breathe, inspiration is an active process and expiration is a passive process. So, so that elastin is really important in giving the chest the recoil to force the air out. And as that elastin is hydrolyzed, the effect that that has is that causes the alveolus to actually expand. That is... A problem because it affects not only the elastic recoil of the chest but it also decreases the surface area if, if, you, if you imagine the alveolus sort of internally it's a bit like a uh, a bunch of a bunch of oranges in, in 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 shape and as it expands it becomes a much flatter more globular surface inside um, and there's less surface area for gas exchange to take place so it has a a quite significant effect on on our ability to not only breathe out but also to exchange gas effectively. Yeah, I I like to think about the comparison between a popcorn and a grape. So the the, the surface area of a popcorn is that much more because there's the, the there's all the folds within it, uh, whereas a grape, when you've got that smooth outline, the surface area is is significantly less, and that's exactly as you've described what's happening here and the ability for the individual alveolus to conduct gas exchange is that much less. I think the other thing to factor in there is the physiological dead space that you get where large sections of the COPD patient's lungs, uh, particularly the, the, the bases, can collapse down on themselves or become hyperinflated and, and, and isolated from the other section of the lung, essentially not ventilating at all. And, and so large sections of the lung can can essentially become useless to them and that summarizes that quite nicely in the fact that with emphysema it's not just a, a ventilation problem you get a perfusion problem as well because obviously if as you both have quite rightly said there's less surface area that means there's less capillary networks uh, in order for oxygen um, and carbon dioxide and gases to uh, to uh, diffuse and while we're on that, it's worth just mentioning the alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency because I think a lot of people have heard of this and know that it causes COPD. But I don't know about you guys, I didn't really understand before I researched this why alpha-1 antitrypsin causes COPD. So effectively, alpha-1 antitrypsin, which is made in the liver, neutralizes that neutrophil elastase that we were talking about earlier. Therefore, patients with a deficiency of alpha-1 antitrypsin don't have this process which switches off 
the neutrophil elastase and it allows it to go on for much longer, breaking down that normal lung tissue. And this continued damage over years leads to really early onset COPD. So actually, we will see COPD in much younger ages than we would with smoking or occupational exposure. And the average onset age is about 35 in patients with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And then obviously, if those people are smokers on top, it'll accelerate that even faster. So I think that's basically the pathophysiology, which we thought would be simple, covered in a nutshell. Pathophysiology is really difficult to convey in in audio format without various diagrams to to look at. Hopefully that's been as clear as we can make it. And we have put a number of diagrams and slightly more succinct write-ups up on the article on the website that you can visit to really get a visual representation of what we've been trying to describe to you but yes that that copd in a nutshell these two very different but very interlinked conditions the chronic bronchitis and the emphysema so let's very briefly talk about diagnosis and some of the tests and steps someone will have had to go through to receive a copd diagnosis and then we can come on to talk about exacerbation which is really the point in the condition that paramedics will be getting involved in care and that paramedics will be encountering these patients. So Alex, how does somebody get diagnosed with COPD? Yeah, most of the people that we're going to see pre-hospitally, especially if you're working on an ambulance, the vast majority will already know that they have COPD. But there are a group of patients that you might see or you might be working in primary care and looking at how that process of diagnosis begins. It's a diagnosis that we should suspect in people who are over 35, uh, who have had a risk factor or multiple risk factors, which, which, as we've said, is usually a history of smoking, particularly in, in sort of more westernized countries, and people who present with one or more of the following symptoms. So they, they, they might present with a history of chronic dyspnea, which is typically exacerbated on exertion. They're going to have a chronic cough, uh, and that could be an intermittent or constant cough, and it may or may not be productive. They're going to have regular sputum production, although it is worth noting that any pattern of sputum production can be associated with COPD. In, in my personal experience, it tends to usually be clear sputum, but yeah, any, any any pattern of production can be associated with the conditions. Those patients are also going to present with a persistent wheeze. And as I said, they're going to have a history of risk factors and exposures. And it's particularly worth considering patients who might be visiting or have emigrated from low or middle income countries where other host factors such as genetics, which may not have been picked up in screening uh, and other environmental factors such as indoor cooking fires and other other uh, uh, air pollution, whether that be indoor or outdoor air pollution, are potentially more of a factor. Another aspect to consider is that the patients, especially during colder months, are going to present with a history of, of very frequent lower respiratory tract infections for the reasons that, that were explained during the pathophysiology section. So anyone who presents with those symptoms is someone who we should be considering for a diagnosis of COPD. And one thing I would mention is that it is worth bearing in mind that COPD symptoms that are presenting with concurrent chest pain and or hemoptysis, that's quite unusual and it would be suggestive of an alternative diagnosis and, and I'll, we'll talk a little bit about those um, in just a minute. Moving on to 
what the guidelines have to say there. There's two guidelines that I've looked at when we're talking about the process of diagnosing COPD. Firstly is the NICE guidelines that we're all familiar with. And the NICE guidelines say that the diagnosis is suspected on the basis of symptoms and signs supported by spirometry. The GOLD guidance, and GOLD, if you're not, if you haven't heard of GOLD, GOLD is the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease. And the GOLD guidance, which is something which if you have an interest in COPD or if you treat COPD patients is something that you should absolutely have a look at because it is, um, it's a really incredibly useful resource. But GOLD have to say on the process of diagnosis that COPD should be considered in any patient who has dyspnea, chronic cough or sputum production, a history of recurrent lower respiratory tract infections and or a history of exposure to risk factors for the disease. So that summarizes what I was saying there quite nicely, I think. You mentioned spirometry. What exactly will that involve? And are there other tests that need to happen before they have a COPD diagnosis? That's a really good question, Josh. So spirometry is something which, particularly if you're working on the road, you may not have seen. It's not something that we tend to carry or be overly involved with. But spirometry is a machine that looks at forced expiratory volume primarily. The reason we need spirometry for a diagnosis of COPD is that although peak expiratory flow rate is quite sensitive for COPD, it has quite a low specificity. So we need something else which is able to uh, to, to really help identify COPD. And, and when conducting spirometry, the presence of a post-bronchodilator forced expiratory volume uh, of less than 0.70, once you've had uh, a medicine that actually opens up the the airways if your forced expiratory volume is still low this confirms the presence of a persistent airflow limitation and that that's essentially the point of spirometry other tests that might be involved particularly if the patient is admitted to hospital for for an initial evaluation they may have a ct that might be useful in differentiating copd in the presence of concomitant disease uh, and excluding differentials but it wouldn't be diagnosed on the basis of a ct scan alone and chest x-ray similarly is not particularly useful to establish a copd diagnosis but it might be useful in excluding differentials and assessing for the presence of other comorbidities uh, such as lung disease skeletal cardiac diseases I think what you've just said, Alex, regarding um, the spirometry test after a bronchodilator leads us really nicely into the differentiation between COPD and asthma. Yeah, definitely, because what, one of the main differentials for COPD is asthma. And I think, Josh, you were going to talk to us a little bit about um, differentiating the two, I think. So the vast majority of our patients that we encounter are already going to have a COPD diagnosis. There are a small subset of patients that have both COPD on a background of asthma, and that's called, um, uh, what's that called, Simon? <laughs> it's a very original, Josh. It's ACOS, and that's asthma and COPD overlap syndrome. Yeah, who, who are going to be marginally more complicated. But from our perspective, were we to be encountering somebody who is is undifferentiated in that respect, who is presenting to us as wheezy, we would expect patients on the COPD side of the track to generally be in a later age of presentation that generally favours a COPD diagnosis, but without fully reversible airflow limitations. So again, this is most clear on peak flow, 
or uh, particularly spirometry, as Alex has just described. But if we're giving these patients bronchodilators and uh, their wheeze is remaining or and their shortness of breath isn't fully reversible, that may suggest COPD, whereas if it is reversible to a normal peak flow or their normal peak flow, that might suggest more to be uh, trending towards asthma. COPD is going to have a hyperinflation of the chest and reduced elastic recoil, which is clear from the pathophysiology we've just described. And finally, a history of A to P favours a diagnosis of asthma. So patients, particularly if they're of younger age, so patients that are particularly allergic to things or have uh, things like eczema or have a, a direct familial link, so either a sibling or a parent with either asthma, significant allergies or eczema, that that would suggest more likely to be asthma. So now let's talk about COPD exacerbation, which is probably the most common thing that we will associate with COPD patients, particularly from a paramedic emergency care perspective. So it's important to bear in mind that whilst COPD exacerbations are a reasonably common element of COPD, the goal guidance is clear in that they shouldn't be an accepted part of the disease and they shouldn't be considered as part of the normal course. It's important to bear in mind that patients with COPD increasingly are living longer with higher functioning lives and although it is progressive so they will get worse and it is terminal, they will not get better. It's important not to expect these patients to have a poor quality of life and we shouldn't be considering an exacerbation as just part of the course. And again, the gold guidance makes this clear as every exacerbation of COPD is injuring the lung and is detrimental to the patient. So when we're thinking of the causes of COPD exacerbation, the overwhelming majority of these are infective. About 70% of the patients who suffer an exacerbation of COPD, it will be due to a chest infection, which is normally rhinovirus or the common cold. But obviously, in the current circumstances, we're recording this in 2022, COVID-19 and other coronavirus diseases should be considered. But the vast, vast majority of these are going to be an infective cause. And again, hopefully the reason for that is clear from the pathophysiology. These patients have a much higher likelihood of trapping respiratory viruses in the respiratory tract and have a limited ability to remove that sputum from their airways. The remaining 30% are normally from environmental causes. So this can be environmental pollutants. This can be exposure to noxious chemicals such as smoking again. I've been to a chap who was a heavy smoker and his COPD exacerbation was from a combination of the five Airwick Glade air fresheners that he had going off around his house, which certainly was causing me to be a bit wheezy and I've got perfectly healthy lungs. So it can be an environmental cause. It could be unknown. So some of them, we're not quite clear what the exacerbative cause is. And in all of these patients, we should be considering whether or not an underlying pulmonary embolus is the cause of their shortness of breath. But we also need to consider some of the other differentials that could be mistaken for an exacerbation of COPD or could be causing one. So Alex, do you want to talk about some of those? 
there's a few things that we just need to consider to rule out just some of the uh, the big conditions to make sure that we're not missing essentially so f- first of all i is pneumonia. As you said, 70% of exacerbations are caused by infective pathogens. And it's quite possible that they may be presenting with a pneumonia plus or minus a COPD exacerbation, because it's very likely that any infective organism is going to cause an exacerbation of their COPD symptoms as well. But it may just be worth bearing in mind that that patient may also have a pneumonia, particularly if you're thinking about a treatment pathway that might look at uh, leaving them at home. So it's just something to consider. Something else to think about is the potential presence of a pulmonary embolism. I'm not going to talk too much about pulmonary embolism or any of these conditions really because they're they're sort of conditions and and subjects in themselves but pulmonary embolism is one not to uh, not to completely forget. Also the presence of pneumothorax or possible presence of pneumothorax, cardiac ischemia or arrhythmia and so ECG is essential to to rule these out and and, a, a patient who's presenting with a an exacerbation of COPD is someone who absolutely needs an ECG and I can attest to that in my own practice where I've been to a patient who I was scratching my head whether this was heart failure is this COPD and and it turned out actually to be of cardiac origin and I I found that out once I'd managed to uh, put the ECG on. Another condition which could present uh, with similar symptoms to an acute exacerbation of COPD would be lung cancer. That's something to consider as a possibility if you've got a patient who's got unexplained weight loss, hemoptysis, chest pain and uh, the presence of lymphadenopathy. And the other the other thing just to briefly mention would be upper airway obstruction obviously with it with a wheeze, uh, low saturations and, and breathing difficulty there is the possibility of upper airway obstruction just something not to uh, not to strike off just because the patient has uh, a pre-existing diagnosis of COPD. I am going to uh, talk about a slightly taboo subject, which uh, we don't usually discuss, but given that we're recording this in 2022, it is uh, is quite relevant, and that is COVID-19. The presence of COVID-19 obviously is a big, uh, an ongoing subject at the moment, and it's worth bearing in mind that patients with COPD are obviously considered to be in a in a high risk group when thinking about the presence of CO uh, of, of COVID-19, and A study by Hansen et al., which has just been published uh, in the last year, found that patients with COPD did have a slightly increased risk with a 95% confidence interval of developing severe COVID-19 symptoms compared to patients without obstructive lung disease. There is also some concern that's been expressed in literature about the use of inhaled corticosteroids, which might be associated with a moderate increase in the risk of severe COPD. But but it is quite clear that the risk of ceasing their prescribed medications is more significant than the potential risk of COVID-19. So it sh- I should just mention that patients should not be advised to stop their- using their prescribed medicines unless you are a respiratory physiologist or, or uh, you know, the prescribing doctor or other clinician who uh, is a non-medical prescriber. Oh, you caught that one. I could see Simon I did, didn't on I? I knew, you, nearly, you nearly got me there. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would have uh, would have got quite cross for you then, Alex. Yeah. I know, I'm sorry, and I, w- I would have deserved it to be fair. The other thing that I found quite interesting looking into COPD exacerbation with COVID nineteen was that there's actually been globally there's been a fifty percent reduction in admissions for COPD exacerbation during the COVID nineteen pandemic compared to pre pandemic times, and that 
we think is likely associated with a reduction in respiratory viral infections, which trigger exacerbation. And, and based on the information that we've just been discussing, the prevalence of infective pathogens causing exacerbation, that makes perfect sense. And I think I, I don't want to get into any discussions about the use of masks, but I think that's a really interesting statistic. Yeah, that is interesting. I, that's counterintuitive to how I thought the uh, the data would go. Yeah, I mean, it, it it makes sense when you when you think about it in terms of the you know the protection and, and the data we're talking about. But yeah, you you would um, you would think that during a pandemic you'd uh, you'd get more admissions for for COPD. But shall we move on to have a little talk about um, examination and history of the patients that are presenting to us? Sure. Yeah, I'll I'll talk a bit about history, shall I? So we need to take a shortness of breath history. So we need to think about some of the symptoms that our patients going to be presenting to us with and inquire about them. So it's highly likely the reason of the call is going to be shortness of breath or dyspnea. And that can be associated with a wide range of respiratory pathology. We need to ensure that we're not going into our questioning anchored to this is definitely an exacerbation of COPD. We need to be asking about the shortness of breath, how it differs from the patient's normal breathing and whether or not it's impacted by exertion or whether or not they're unable to do some of the normal activities of daily living that they might otherwise do because of this shortness of breath. We need to ask them about their cough. Now, we would expect patients with COPD to ordinarily have a productive cough. They may not be aware of the colour of their sputum. Generally, this is going to be clear, as you've said, Alex, or, or ever so slightly yellow. They'll They'll generally... If they know the colour of their sputum, they'll know its normal colour and they'll know what normal yellow is for them. But a lot of patients cough it into the back of their throat and then swallow it, so may not be aware of, of what colour sputum they've been producing. So we need we need to ask about that. And if it's more yellow or more pearlescent than normal, we need to have a high index of suspicion that they, they may have an infective exacerbation and they may require some antibiotics as part of that. Contrastingly, patients that have a dry cough, for example, they, they, they could have a condition like pulmonary fibrosis, or it could be a, a side effect of some of the medication that they're on, such as ACE inhibitors classically produce a dry cough. So we need to ensure that we're uh, appropriately quizzing about that. Hemoptysis is something that we need to consider, ask about and document pertinent negatives if it's not present. Hemoptysis is typically associated with lung cancer, but it can be a rare clinical feature of pulmonary embolism. So we need to have those two differentials high on our radar if that's something that presents to us. But perhaps confusingly, patients that are coughing a lot, particularly if it's more than normal, can cause microtrauma to, uh, to, to their throat, which can present as some blood in the sputum. So uh, there, there can be some red herrings there. But we need to bear in mind that hemoptysis isn't really something that doesn't warrant further investigation. Yeah, I think what you were saying there about uh, blood in the sputum due to excess coughing, I, I think if I'm right, that that usually presents as blood staining in the sputum, isn't it? Rather than hemoptysis sort of classically as either frothy pink blood stain or or, or as, as frank bleeding. So if it's, if it's sort of clear sputum with streaks of blood, that's more likely to be indicative of, um, of trauma from excessive coughing and that, uh, that sort of presentation. Yeah, indeed. And exactly. I probably should have made that more clear. Whereas the, the classic hemoptysis we're talking about is either a pinky frothy sputum or like you say, lots of frank blood that they're bringing up. But there's exceptions to every rule, isn't there? So we, we need to be giving strong consideration to, to either. 
So moving on to wheezing then, wheezing is probably going to be a a common pattern of this disease and is something that the patient will probably live with normally for them. So they'll be able to tell you what is and isn't an exacerbated wheeze for these patients. So this is obviously something that we need to note and we need to note uh, any changes as a result of our treatment. We also need to ask about uh, the presence of chest pain and as Alex alluded to earlier, chest pain is not a typical feature with COPD. Whilst it can be present, we need to keep in mind our differentials that might have triggered our exacerbation of COPD, which could be a pulmonary embolism or pleurisy. Finally, we need to inquire around systemic symptoms. So that could be things like fatigue or weight loss or night sweats, which may indicate other causes such as uh, tuberculosis or lung cancer. And then the presence of fever, which obviously could be a pneumonia. And that could have been the trigger for this exacerbation. Yeah, and the next thing we need to uh, think about is the patient's pain. Using a tool to assess pains, whether you use Socrates or old carts, whichever whichever, uh, pain assessment tool you like to use. And also think about the patient's past medical history. Have they got a pre-existing diagnosis of CAPD? How many hospital admissions have they had and for what reason? Have they had exacerbations in the past and how frequently? Have they ever had to have non-invasive ventilation or ITU admission that's a that's a big uh, red flag to consider and also the presence of other conditions like asthma heart failure or ischemic heart disease yeah so moving on to meds history we should be taking a detailed meds history as well as their compliance with these so we need to document what inhalers the patient has as well as whether or not they use them properly whether or not they've had increased use and whether or not we think they've got good compliance with that. And it's completely reasonable to ask patients to demonstrate their inhaler technique to us so that we can offer coaching on that. We need to document whether or not the patient is on a current course of steroids, as that's going to definitely impact on our risk stratification for, for what we're going to do with them, whether or not they've got just-in-case medications, and whether or not they've use these it's not unusual for a lot of copd patients to use their just-in-case meds because of a a minor exacerbation and then stop using them so they they've completed half a course and then they can have a a a recurrence of of that exacerbation often much worse we need to be noting down whether or not they're on home oxygen or whether or not they're having nebulizers and we need to factor that into our impression of this patient because if they are they're very much going to be along along the course of their COPD development and they're very much towards the more severe end of COPD as a pathology. And going off the back of what you were just saying about um, steroids there Josh I think it's also worth bearing in mind when you're considering the medicines history of the patient that the use of corticosteroids does increase the risk of infection and if that's a short-term course of corticosteroids the risk is reasonably small but the the longer and the longer the use of corticosteroids and the higher the dosage uh, the the risk increases so patients who are using long-term corticosteroids do have a risk of uh, an increased risk of infection so then we need to move on to social history so we need to be taking a smoking history as as part of that asking the patient if they 
ever did smoke and remember lots of these patients may not be smokers and can still have copd so it's important not to assume that but if they if they are a smoker we need to be inquiring whether or not they still smoke and and documenting the amount and frequency of that we need to be using that as an opportunity to deliver health promotion advice to them even if it is during an exacerbation so i i believe the the, the greatest evidence-based factor that a patient with copd can do to slow the progression of the disease and to influence the number of exacerbations they have is to stop smoking entirely and again remember that some patients may vape thinking that that is a safe alternative to towards smoking because that's often what it's marketed as uh, and the evidence is unclear as to how vaping particularly impacts on COPD but there is some evidence that suggests it might be worse than smoking uh, because of the amount of quote-unquote smoke or vapor that's that's going into the lungs and the frequency that people will do it so uh, so we need to be factoring that in we need to be looking at the patient's mobility as as always often these are elderly patients who are potentially frail so we need to be thinking about their mobility and how today's exacerbation is impacting on that whether or not they are unable to complete their normal activities of daily living or whether or not today's exacerbation has resulted in a significant decline to their functional ability and we obviously need to be factoring that into our our end decision making that we'll talk about later. And remember that lots of these factors throughout the history and indeed the examination which we'll come on to in a minute don't just indicate the severity of disease in terms of whether we're going to convey to hospital, but it might be that they're deciding factors in whether we actually don't convey patients that are significantly unwell who we might decide need palliative care and end-of-life care at home instead. We've already covered that COPD is a palliative diagnosis, and there does become a point when actually it may be in the patient's best interest to not convey them. So all of this information adds to that decision as well as the ones that we do need to blue light in or the ones that we can discharge with a mild exacerbation. Simon, do you want to talk to us a little bit about what we're going to be looking for in terms of physical examination? Yeah, so as always with our physical examination, we can either take an A to E approach or we can do a systems exam. So our systems exam obviously is going to look at the predominantly probably the respiratory and cardiovascular systems. If we consider the respiratory system, the things we are looking for include stigmata of peripheral disease. So we might be looking for evidence of nicotine staining, which shows us that a patient's a smoker. The presence of asterixis, which is a coarse slow flap, which could be present with uh, CO2 retention or a fine tremor, which we might associate with beta agonist use, so salbutamol. Another thing we need to look for in the hands is the presence of clubbing. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I was always taught that clubbing was specific to COPD. Uh, is, is that something you guys are familiar with as well? Were you taught that? Yeah, that's that's something I uh, was definitely taught by my mentor, who definitely instilled that in me. You're, you're not going to say my mentor was wrong and didn't know what he was talking about, Simon, are you? I am going to say your mentor was wrong, yeah, and I can say that because your mentor was me. Um, so <laughs> That explains um, so much. But, uh, yeah, yeah. But actually, no, I, I was wrong, and, and clubbing isn't uh, specific to COPD. In fact, actually, if you find the presence of clubbing, you should look for other conditions such as uh, bronchial carcinoma or pulmonary fibrosis. So just bear that in mind that actually clubbing isn't uh, a sign of COPD. We probably want to have a look at the patient's sputum, so we want to then grade this. As Alex said earlier, most 
patient's sputum. It can vary, but most is like a clear mucoid color or a mucopurulent color. But if there's the presence of purulent sputum, so that's your sort of really dark yellow, green or brown colored sputum, then we need to be thinking about the presence of infection, which has caused our exacerbation. We obviously want to look for evidence of peripheral edema. We want to assess for hydration status and urine output and obviously skin turgor, although I'd argue that skin turgor is probably quite inaccurate, especially as COPD is a tends to be a disease that affects older people. Yeah, also while we're looking for peripheral edema uh, in, in the lower legs, we should probably consider looking for signs of, of a DVT just because that may impact on our on our risk uh, assessment as to whether or not today's shortness of breath episode could be a PE so looking for isolated redness or unilateral swelling of the leg yeah that's a that's a great one to add on Josh yeah thanks for adding that see my mentor did know a thing or two he wasn't completely yeah. useless. <laughs> yeah he did taught you, I'm glad <laughs> I taught you something useful in the viewers did I teach you how to measure jugular venous pressure, though? That's no. uh, that's the next one. I'll probably not know. So we want to look for our jugular venous pressure or, or evidence of jugular vein distension. We want to then move on to the chest. And when we examine our chest, we want to do a nice inspection, percussion, palpation and auscultation approach, obviously, if we've, if we've so, got time. So you kind of moved past JVP a little bit. I, I don't think... Well, personally, me and my practice, I don't think we need to be measuring it and, and whacking out rulers and stuff. But presence of increased jugular venous pressure is probably useful to note. But I think it's also worth bearing in mind that that, that indicates increased pressure in the thorax. So it could be relevant because it could be a, a sign of heart failure, particularly right-sided heart failure or core pulmonal, which is of relevance in COPD and, and, and is something that should be understood and, and, and factored in. And we'll probably come on to that a little bit later, but it's not exclusively so. So increased pressure in the chest, such as a patient with a significant barrel chest and quite a lot of retained air in there may have increased jugular venous pressure and, and visible veins. So, um, so just need to put that in perspective. Fantastic. Josh has just mentioned it there, but obviously that moving down into the chest we're going to inspect for that barrel chested appearance or a cachectic thin person that we might see with those who lean more towards an, an emphysema type copd we're going to look at their respiratory rate at their color at whether they can finish sentences when they talk whether they look short of breath whether they're using accessory muscles or they're needing to tripod to help with their breathing so that covers our inspection. Next, we're going to move on to percussion. So percussion is one of those things that obviously has some relevance and is part of a respiratory exam. Depending on the environment you're in, its clinical usefulness is debatable. But obviously, you might find a resonant chest is normal. You might find dullness in consolidation or collapse. If there's a pleural effusion, you might get some stony dullness, as it's referred to. Or obviously, if you've got really hyperresonance, there could be a pneumothorax. But at the same time, we need to remember that a lot of these COPD patients' chests are going to be relatively hyperresonant anyway, due to that barrel effect that we we're talking about earlier and that air trapping. So it's not as accurate on its own as, as it would be in the absence of COPDs. So we need to put all of these things together. Alex, next, we're going to talk about auscultation. So do you want to take us through auscultation? Yeah, definitely. So auscultation obviously is is of 
critical importance when ex- examining a COPD patient, especially uh, when considering an exacerbation. One of the key points is to make sure with with all auscultation, but particularly in these cases, that you are listening to the front and the back of the patient. Because if you're only listening to the front, you're going to miss the lower lobe of the lungs. And if you're only listening to the back, you're going to miss the middle lobe of the left lung. So it is, it's really important that you do have a very thorough auscultation. And bear in mind also that, as we said earlier, that fine crackles are likely to be present in the normal COPD chest in any case. So the presence of fine crackles in and of itself is probably normal, but any other adventitious sounds could uh, be indicative of something more. So when we're listening, we're listening for air entry, particularly paying attention for reduced air entry, uh, listening for, for wheeze and crackles. And one really big red flag to be aware of is the presence of the silent chest, the same the same in asthma. If, you've, if you're listening to a patient who is tripoding and showing signs of breathing difficulty and you're hearing a silent chest, that is a very big warning sign. And obviously, I forgot to talk about palpation during that. Palpation has semi-limited uses but you can obviously assess for equal lung expansion by uh, wrapping your hands around the patient's chest and asking them to take a deep breath in which could show some relevance into whether there's a pneumothorax. Yeah I mean personally in my experience these patients are generally certainly during an exacerbation their chests are reasonably hyperinflated anyway and the, the relative movement that I'm able to pick up is is limited. I don't know if that's just me with my poor observational skills, but yeah, I, I've found limited relevance uh, in, in, in that respect personally. So that's our respiratory exam. We probably want to factor in a cardiovascular exam, and we've talked about those at length in previous podcasts, so we're not going to go into too much depth here, but it's probably relevant to talk about the ECG. Any patient presenting with dyspnea should have an ECG as part of good practice and COPD patients are no different. It's important to consider and exclude relevant cardiovascular causes for the shortness of breath. But patients with COPD may have some changes which can be normal and are generally non-specific. So the lung hyperexpansion can cause external compression of the heart, lowering of the diaphragm and consequent elongation and vertical orientation of the heart. So it can change the cardiac access of the heart. It can also undergo clockwise rotation, further changing the, um, the electrical axis. So we may get electrical axis changes. We can also get signs of P pulmonal, which is large P waves due to right ventricular hypertrophy, as we've discussed a little bit before, and that's due to pressure backflow back into the atria. We can also get low QRS voltage, particularly in 1 AVL 5 and 6, because of the poor electrical conduction through the increased air in the chest. And as most people are aware, these patients may be tachycardic. That could be because they're hypoxic. It could be because of recent bronchodilator therapy, particularly if we've been giving them lots of cell butamol. It could be due to distress, or it could be due to some other factor such as a PE. So that brings us to the end of this first part on COPD. Released at the same time as this episode is our second part on the topic, where we're going to be looking at some of the differentials that we need to consider in a little bit more depth. And we're going to be focusing mostly on 
treatment options and management pathways for patients with COPD as well as making the difficult decision about whether or not these patients should be admitted to hospital or not. So that episode is available for you right now if you haven't already seen it in the podcast feed or you can give it a little while and come back to that episode uh, once you've absorbed this one. But in the meantime be sure to check out the article that's on the website generalbroadcast.org.uk where you can find a little bit more explanation about some of the pathophysiology principles that we've been discussing in this podcast, along with some diagrams to support that, where sometimes listening to us talk about it doesn't quite get it to set home. As well as up there, you can find the full back catalogue of our previous episodes. All that's left to say is thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. And I hope you guys don't mind. I'm, I'm going to uh, use a, a slightly dirty word, which I know we don't usually talk about, but given uh, that we're recording this in 2022. Is it- <laughs> Worse than that. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I couldn't resist. <laughs> And I hope you guys don't mind. I, I'm going to uh, bring up a slightly uh, taboo subject, uh, which I think is. Is that. <laughs> <laughs> Could someone mute Josh, please? <laughs> <clears throat> I'm recording at home uh, at my mum and dad's house, and so I really hope they're downstairs <laughs> because I'm on headphones, so they'll have just. They'll have... <laughs> oh i thought it was a paramedic podcast he was uh oh dear okay right i'm gonna try and do that bit without uh without interruptions this time please (laughs) otherwise we're never gonna get done okay